Welcome to the Bellway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link there, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it'd be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting those podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, sharing the podcast with others is usually how the show grows anyway, and so that is always greatly appreciated. In this week's show, we're going to talk through two ideas I've sort of had bouncing around in my head for the past week or so while I've been watching the fallout from Afghanistan. And it's it's sort of the idea of a loss of empathy and also combined with that, the failure of elites to get a correct handle on any of the major crises or major moments of the last decade or so, you know, give or take a few. I think it'll make a little bit more sense as I get in here. We dig into the topic and sort of talk through it. So that's the main issues we're going to talk through. The Lie Item showcases this week Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, which was delivered 58 years ago this upcoming week. It was delivered on uh, August 28th. And so that's coming up here. So I figured I would play that for all of you here because it's a really, really good speech and probably actually one of the better ones in all of American history. So worth revisiting that one. So that is the agenda for this week's show. And we can jump right in here. So for the newsletter and Friday column, I wrote about how I believe Joe Biden should resign. And I still stand by that for now. Uh, It appears we've started to evacuate some people more quickly. Saturday was a very bad day on the evacuation front. Sunday, it appears we we made better progress, getting more people out, more planes. Uh, We're seeing the Biden administration now start to bring on some private partners. They're using um, some laws to, to get some of these airlines to chip in with some planes to help move people out of some of these other countries. Uh, where they're evacuating from out of Afghanistan back into the United States. So there's a lot of really good stuff that's starting to pop up now. Obviously, all this should have happened beforehand, but it is good to finally see some level of competence start to take place here. It's a shame, as I said, is, is it's taken this long for the administration to show that it actually cares about this as an issue. Um, it's still hard to get that, that point across from the administration. Uh, you know, you've got just all kinds of stuff there where it doesn't appear this is a top issue for them, even though it should be. And as I said, you know, I've had two ideas bouncing around in my head, and I haven't quite figured out how to properly write about them yet. I took a stab at one side of one of these in my Monday column that's coming out, and they, the, these ideas kind of feel mutually exclusive to me, at least to a certain extent. But, but it plays into the notion of the Biden White House not appearing to care for endangered American and Afghan lives. So here's the two ideas broadly, and then we'll talk through it a bit more. So the first is that the last for the last five years, we've dealt more and more with a severely desensitized society, which makes them less likely to care about lives being endangered or us losing lives because we've seen it on such a large scale, and so we care about it less and less. 
you know, it's why your your liberal friends probably don't care as much about this Afghanistan story. They're, they don't care that Americans' lives are in danger or Afghan lives are in danger. They're probably not posting about it. You haven't seen them care about, you know, you know, kids locked up in cages and that sort of thing. It's just you've seen all these crises and stuff, and so you just don't care as much. And, you know, part of this is politics, obviously. But it's also just you're desensitized to such a degree that this doesn't seem quite as much. Because the most I've seen from most of my liberal friends, with the with the passing exception of one or two, is just the occasional meme or something like that. They don't want to engage with this story. It's embarrassing to their politics. They don't want to say anything. And it's not just them, though. You, on the flip side, you have many on the right. You have sort of the isolationist crowd, which is one group. And they're exactly like liberals on this story. They don't care that American or Afghan lives are really in danger. They just want to leave Afghanistan because they don't really believe in any form of foreign intervention. And I've seen some of them try to push against that. But when you try to put, you know, they're like, well, we're not against all intervention. But when you push them to try to articulate a form of any any military intervention anywhere of any degree, they really don't seem to want to engage in any of it. So isolationist is the correct is the correct label for them. So that's one side. And the other side on the right comes back to the pandemic because they're totally unfazed by the fact that we have more than 600,000 dead Americans from COVID-19 and more are dying every day. This is something that they just do not care about. And why they don't care about it, you, you, know, you can take your pick here, but I do think this lack of empathy or in this desensitization here plays a factor where you've seen so much and you've experienced so much happen here that you care less. Now, I think this is broad-based. It's, it's up and down all across society. The second issue is this. So, And this came out of a piece, originally this came from a piece written, written by Tom Nichols, uh, sort of a pundit on the left and right. He, he used to be considered more conservative because he's a ta- he, you know he wouldn't have voted for any Republican now, I don't think ever. I think consider him more of a Democrat. And anyway, he, he, the sentiment that he that he wrote about, though, it was echoed by other writers on the right. And it was basically this. The American people chose this outcome in Afghanistan. And what's more, the American people chose the leadership in the charge. So ultimately, this is all the American people's fault. He washed his hands, said it's all their fault. You can't blame any of these military guys. You can't blame any of the elites. This is only American voters' fault. And forms of this were also further expressed by Jonah Goldberg and David French of the Dispatch, um, where I'm occasionally a writer. And Nichols agreed with their assessments, too. But basically, it is everything we're witnessing at this moment is because the bases of each party are so bad populism is bad, and everything would be better if that segment of society was more under control and less out of power. So, the more, you know, the more I think about that for a moment, as we, so, you know, keep both of these things in mind as, as we dive in here. Um, because, you know, at first impulse, you might agree, you might say, well, these kind of ideas, you know, you have a, a desensitized people, which would make them worse at things like voting, which would seem to sort of a support that contention there, which, you know, populism is bad, if the people are bad, populism is bad, so on and so forth. Um, I had sort of an immediate opposite reaction to, to, to that second point in particular, and I think it sort of informs my reaction to this first point here, too, about empathy, although I think there's more truth to the empathy point than we may want to let on here. But in any event, we're going to dig in, into both of them here. 
Um, but I, because I thought about doing it a full another Afghanistan episode, but I really wanted to talk through these ideas more because as the fallout from the retreat from Afghanistan has taken place, it's been sort of interesting to watch the reaction of everybody or lack of a reaction in real time. And it sort of speaks to both of these issues. So to sort of explain this first one here, I think the best person to do that is Jacob Stern. He wrote a piece in The Atlantic discussing this point on empathy and our desensitization. And I think he makes a really good, convincing case on this, on this area. So he writes the following. Last week, the psychologist Stephen Taylor was at a socially distanced get-together with some relatives and their friends when the conversation turned to the chaos in Afghanistan. Someone mentioned the sickening footage of desperate Afghans clinging to American military aircraft as they departed. Then one man made a remark that caught Taylor off guard. The videos, he said, were funny. Others agreed. Now, Taylor was appalled. It was one of the most disturbing things he had heard all week. Worse, he doesn't think it was an isolated instance of casual sadism. Taylor studies disaster psychology at the University of British Columbia, and he knows how intense, sustained stress can desensitize the mind. What most concerned him about the incident was that it suggested about the pandemic's effects on our experience of other disasters, and more broadly, our ability or inability to empathize. For the better part of two years now, the world has been living through a pandemic. The suffering has not been parceled out evenly, but virtually everyone has felt the pain in one way or another. Meanwhile, the world's baseline drumbeat of cat- catastrophe has not faltered. Wildfires have filled, wildfires have filled the skies with smokes. Earthquakes have leveled cities. Buildings have collapsed without warning. It is worth asking, then, how, if at all, the most universal of disasters is changing the way we process these crises, and how we'll react to disasters for the rest of our lives. The question is really two questions, one about the victims of future catastrophes, and the other about the observers who will watch these catastrophes play out from a safe distance. The first question, at least, has a fairly straightforward answer. After surviving a disaster, Taylor told me, a minority of people become more resilient, so that, should another disaster strike, they are better able to cope. For most people, though, the stress compounds. Surviving one crisis puts one at greater risk of having an unhealthy psychological reaction to another. In California, a state that now burns on an annual schedule, wildfire survivors I've spoken with have described feeling of being haunted by subsequent blazes. Quote, there is a sense in which people's coping reserves are sort of at finite entities, says Joe Ruzek, a PTSD researcher at Palo Alto University. So if you have to cope a whole lot, as so many people have to, had to do over the past year and a half, you can kind of diminish your resources. In this way, the pandemic has left everyone more vulnerable to the psychological effects of tomorrow's earthquakes, mass shootings, and pandemics. As an as an aside here, I think this point is absolutely right, and I think if you think about how the the George Floyd protests popped up right there in the middle of the pandemic, you know, when everything it was right there, right before the fall surge happened, and everything went uphill. I think the sensitivities to that were higher because of the pandemic. We had had these moments before, but it was nothing quite like that moment. Going back to this piece here. He says, the second 
question is trickier. For those of us lucky to observe a disaster from afar, the experience of having lived through one before could make us more empathetic towards the survivors. Or it could leave us fatigued to the point of inurement, like the people who said at Taylor's get-together that they found the Afghanistan videos funny. At this point, psychologists tell me which one of those effects prevails is anyone's guess. In his research on post-disaster empathy, Kang Lee, a developmental neuroscientist at the University of Toronto, has found that children as young as nine can become more generous in the aftermath of disasters. The caveat, he says, is that in most studies, the area have focused on short-term disasters with well-defined beginnings and ends, such as earthquakes. Few, if any, look at long, drawn-out disasters like pandemics. This, he says, is very new to psychologists. Now, he, Jacob Stern goes out to write out some initial thoughts and conclusions, because you're basically trying to answer that, that point. How is the pandemic going to impact society Long term, and you know, he you can I'll post to it and you can link to it and read what he thinks there. But the end conclusion is basically this we don't know how this is going to play out and how it's going to impact people long term. And we're going on now 18 months with this pandemic impacting everything. It looks for sure like we're going to end up going through another surge of it through the winter and I mean, the fall and the winter here. And so, more than likely, you're looking at at least two full years here. Which means this is going to be almost, we're getting in here where it's going to match the same length of time as the great flu pandemic of 1918. That was about a two to three year cycle there as well. So we're 18 months in, we're heading towards two. We've already had the racial riots of last year, and you know the thing that he doesn't mention in his piece, but I think you do have to factor in, is the administration of Donald Trump, and specifically how the media covered it, because the press went in all guns blazing, hair on fire, there was a new crisis every day, and everyone had to panic every single moment of every single day. And so between that and your regular drumbeat of things, and then the pandemic hits, it's just something unique that I don't... You're not going to find anything much like that in American history. I mean, you really are talking times like the Great Depression, and you're talking about extreme moments in American history where you're going to find something like this. And in all those other instances, you do see America bounce back in the end, but we don't know how something like a global pandemic is going to play out quite like it has and how it's going to impact us on in terms of empathy. But again, I think the pandemic effect is very real because, you know, you had the riots last summer. They were much more pronounced than at any other time. You have the disaster and the crisis that's happening right now in Afghanistan. And you have, interestingly enough, you have the Biden administration's reluctance to empathize or care about this story. And that's kind of striking here. And and I've read people try to connect this to some of Biden's past comments where he doesn't seem to empathize quite as well in other situations and other events. And it's mainly because he's just continuously wrong on everything regarding foreign policy. But in other situations, Biden is able to empathize with a situation or a person or a people, and he's not done that here. And it's not just been him, though. It's it's the administration at large. Getting them to care about this has been a chore for everyone involved. And that's with a lot of lives at risk. And this is one of the reasons that I, I think he needs to resign, because an American president should, at minimum, have to care about something like this. All previous American presidents have cared. 
So his story, you know, Jacob Stern's story about people laughing, about people falling from planes, I just don't, I don't think it's that unique. I mean, that's a very extreme example here. But on the right, I've seen similar things where people are denying that people have died or that COVID-19 is even real. I don't know how you can do that, but you see that same thing there where people are either laughing in a situation or denying it exists. And even with the riot, you know, the George Floyd riots, you have people who deny that just flat out the racist system exists anymore. And you see all these dumb things and, you know, is this just more vocal because we have the internet around? Are we seeing it more because there's a currently a lack of empathy? Are we just desensitized to everything? And so th- those are sort of, I think, some factors that we're playing through at the moment. You have the pandemic playing out in the background, and it's an open question right now how this all is going to play out. We don't know how this is going to impact human behavior. We don't know how this is going to impact our culture and how we're going to react to future things after this pandemic has passed. Because there's going to be a post-pandemic moment. We're eventually going to move past this where people are just either going to care or not about whether or not COVID-19 is endemic. But what's going to be left after that? How are we going to react and be around each other after that? I think that's the open question here. It's obviously impacted some people. Some people have lost their minds. I think it's right that you can look around and see that other people have become more resilient. Um, you know, I, I don't feel like I've lost my mind at any point during this thing, and I feel more capable of dealing with a future one at this point. So I kind of feel like I'm more in that resilient category. I haven't been burnt out like I've heard quite a few of my other friends talk about being. And so, uh, you know, and it's kind of like that way after the, after the Trump administration. A lot of my liberal friends well said, I'm just going to check out now. I don't want to deal with this anymore. He's out. I'm done. And I think you're seeing that with a couple of, you know, a lot of these stories happening now. They just don't care anymore, and they're not going to start caring, so they're going to laugh at stories like this. So it, I don't know where this is going to go. I do think it's interesting to see it all play out here right now. The second thought, as I said at the top, has more to do with everything that we're experiencing, how everything we're doing right now is the fault of the public at large. And so if you take that first point here that we just talked through about the lack of empathy, you could then translate to say that, well, right now the people and, you know, the populists and the people who are voting in all these parties are just bad because they have this lack of empathy. And they're producing bad leaders. And so everything that we're seeing right now is their fault. They voted for Trump. They voted for Biden. It's all their fault. And this this main point came from Tom Nichols, who's made a living telling people they need to listen to, quote-unquote, the experts more often. And that Americans' incapacity to trust and do what the experts say has made everything worse. So he blamed the fallout in Afghanistan over Americans voting for presidents who wanted the withdrawal. So this is... You know, he he puts it as it's our fault because we voted for these peoples. Now, interestingly enough, he thinks the he you know he thinks this whole thing is a disaster and he thinks the withdrawal is a wrong mistake. But he also told people that they had to vote for Joe Biden. That's and he would not would take that vote back at all, and that everyone should have. So, I'm a little confused about his point here because, by extension, because he he doesn't take any blame here, but by extension, he he should be taking blame here. So. I don't quite get that. But his point was combined with some thoughts by Jonah Goldberg. And David French agreed with these two. And they were 
thoughts on populism. And so Goldberg made these points on Twitter with French and Nichols largely just joining in. And so here's what Jonas said. He said, I'm really struggling to think of a time when I despaired more for the country and had so much contempt, not just for both parties, but the basis of both parties. I've been writing against populism for 20 years. The GOP and its booster media is drunk on populism, lionizing people who just want to make money off your anger and crapping on people who still think they should be leaders and patriots. It's amazing how there's this whole shtick on the right to dunk on the masses and pure democracy. You know, we're a republic, not a democracy. But the moment you admit that the populists on your own side can be wrong too, you're suddenly an elitist and a snob. He's got some good points there, and I get his points there. And he's specifically targeting some pundits on the right with this criticism. And in regards to those pundits, he's, he's absolutely right, because most of them are just morons. But I also, when I, when I read it, especially the first part where he was talking about when he despaired more for the country and had contempt, not just for the parties, but for the bases of the parties, I reflexively disagreed with that. And... I think my disagreement and why it became so reflexive to what he was saying here is that populism does not exist in a vacuum. It is something that has to arise because of something that creates it. It's not something that just, you know, all of a sudden you're going along, you have normal politics, and all of a sudden populism pops up. It's caused by something. It's not just a media creation. It is caused by events. I don't think you can create, you could try to create it with the media, but you, it had, there has to be events to back it up. And I think we're at a moment where populism would exist with or without the media. And I think you're going to see a lot more of it after this Afghanistan story. However, this thing gets, gets resolved. I think you're going to see more of it on the backside. And I think his criticism where he blames you know, the, the people here and the basis of the parties misses a very important point on this. Populism, more specifically the masses, have not been the ones making the choices that have resulted in so much of dis- the disasters over the past decade. And this is where Tom Nichols is wrong, too, saying, you know, we did this, we chose this, and trying to blame the people instead of the experts in charge. And you just can't do that. Populism right now is a reaction to the failures of elites across society. So here's just a list. Here's a list of the failures we witnessed where experts in charge made a series of decisions that the people did not like. So first you had the bailouts of the major banks and industries. And instead of letting you know capitalism and the market take care of them, as Republicans said they always believed in, you instead had a situation where Americans were the ones who lost their jobs, everyday Americans were the ones who lost their houses, their savings, their retirements, all while large corporations were saved and bailed out. Republicans and Democrats both did this. And recall, at the time, you know, as the Great Recession was, was in, the, were in the middle of that, there were two protests on the backside of that, on both sides. You had the Tea Party, which was the most immediately impactful thing because that changed votes. They swept out Republicans, and then you had these, this new um, you know, Republican type grow up. And then you also, on the left, had the Occupy Wall Street movement. Both of them were angry over different reasons, but over the same kind of news stories. 
those movements never actually died. You, you would think that based on the news. They just grew into different things and altered over time. I mean, now we have democratic socialists in the Democratic Party. And a lot of the most Trumpy people in the Republican Party came up out of that Tea Party movement. That's who they were. Some of the most Trumpy voters you could, and, and Trumpy versions of politicians come out of that movement there. And it was because, and these people all popped up, because of the failures of the politicians and leaders before them, who were part of these leadership groups, elite circles, that at the time people like Jonah and Nichols and some of these others were praising. These are the type of leaders that they praised, but these are also the leaders that failed. So that's the economy. Then you have the failures across these two wars. You got the Iraq War, where we never found WMDs, and now we have Biden leaving Afghanistan. And you know, this involves, again, the elites of both parties, both in the military establishment and in the party system. You've had, you've got people telling troops right now who served on multiple fronts across two decades that everything they did was for naught. And the elites didn't just fail to win these wars. They're now failing to leave these countries. I mean, if you remember, once we left Iraq, then ISIS popped up. We're leaving Afghanistan, and ISIS is already there. We've already got al-Qaeda there, and we can't even get our own people out. And so you have people's lives in danger. So there's an ongoing failure here, too, with Biden and the military doing a bad job of just doing their job. And then they're telling current and former military members that their service never really mattered here. And so... You know, I've read a lot from former military guys who are just broken over this, needing support. So, you know, make sure to reach out to them. But the 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 broader point here is that that creates a populist reaction because all the people involved here, they did what they were told to do, and now they're told their service did matters significantly less. And I know all those all the branches have put out letters trying to reassure the troops. But everyone can see through what their leaders are saying here. They can see what is being said, because you can read some of the pundits. I mean, I've seen this specifically from isolationists and libertarians. When a soldier has talked about, you know, just being, feeling hurt about what, are, what has happened here, you will see libertarians scream in the mentions, sunk cost fallacy. Telling people who have give, who have offered their life in service for the country and who have been there when these bullets have flown around and just saying sunk cost is fallacy, we need to get out, and your experience doesn't matter here, is a very stupid political move. And yet I've still seen it. That's another form of failure there. Interestingly enough, that's also a failure of empathy on the part of some of these isolationists and, and libertarians here. And you know, I've seen them as they've talked about this, trying to pump up. It hasn't really mattered. It's sort of interesting, this Afghanistan thing. There's, it hasn't really mattered what your political party is. If you have a strong belief on this one way or the other, you're going to come out strongly for this. And so we've seen the far left, we've seen libertarians and isolationists all join together on this one part here. And it's interesting to see how, how little empathy they have for what's happening here at the moment. Then, on top of all this, you've got the economy, the wars, you have this pandemic. And I've ranted on this podcast ad nauseum about the failures of the pandemic, about elite, uh, the elite failures across of this, uh, particularly the concept of elite panic. And we've had all kinds of, quote-unquote, noble lies being told by everyone uh, in, uh, across the entire medical establishment. And so... 
you know, we know things about, you know, that there's the lies about you don't need masks at first. Well, then now, now a few months later, you, you need to have masks. We're only lying to you because we need to get things. And now you have them talking down the effectiveness of vaccines. You've got this debate over masks right now in schools, which is just utterly dumb. It, the, the assuredness uh, that people pretend they have over these concepts is just dumb. And we know that the media is busy underplaying the effectiveness of vaccines because they like this firestorm. I think one of the interesting videos that came out over the weekend was, was this video of Nancy Pelosi and, and the the DCC. There was a video of them having this big dinner, this big thing where all these rich people are there supporting the Democratic cause. They're all around these tables, you know, having a big party. None of them are masked. However, the wait staff is masked. So it's very interesting to see the people, the little people are masked up. But the rich, powerful people are not. That plays into concepts of populism. I don't know if you know that, folks, but that does. Pandemic matters for you, but not for them. The biggest failure, I think, on the pandemic front is Australia. So, so there's some, and you can look this story up, but there's some officials there who've started killing dogs, rescue shelter dogs, in a bid to prevent people from going to these shelters to do work. That's how they read their shutdown orders in Australia, and that's what they started doing. So that's how insane that some of these places have gotten out there. And in Australia at the moment, there's this large, massive protest over there. They're very harsh lockdowns, which are only going to go further, and it's only the protests are only going to get louder. And this is despite, you know, they've got these draconian lockdowns. And in the middle of this, the cases are going up. Cases are going up, and the vaccination push is not working there. So it's a very interesting dynamic happening out there. But in any event, you know, I've picked these these examples. You've got the economy. You've got the wars. You've got the pandemic. I picked them off for a reason, because both parties have had a crack at solving them. The elites of both parties have had a crack at solving them, and they've all failed, sometimes in very spectacular fashion. And Biden is in the process of becoming the very worst of all of any of them, which is astounding given what we've seen so far. And so that's why I think Jonah is a little off base here, because there are reasons for voters to be angry. They've swung back and forth trying to get better leadership to solve the problems that are here from both parties, and neither party is sending their best. And you can blame the voters in the primaries for doing this, but it's still not much better. They can only vote for who appears. And to me, it doesn't appear that they failed too much on this part. Because when Donald Trump showed up on the scene, because this is really where the populists, the, the anti-populists show up. It's, it's really the Donald Trump when he shows up in 2016. When he does that, he shows up after 16 years of normal politicians trying to solve all these issues. You had George W. Bush and Barack Obama in the White House. You had normal Democrats and Republicans across Congress during that time, and they were the ones who originally failed at this. The parties that got praised for, you know, being the adults in charge were the ones who created all this. I mean, Ross Perot first showed up in the 90s. George W. Bush's presidency ended it with the Great Recession and two wars still going. Obama presided over one of the worst economic recoveries in history. He wasn't able to really do anything over both of those wars. He ends Iraq, but only for that to result in the rise of ISIS. So you've got this just disaster 
of 16 years here of the elites in both parties. I mean, you saw Barack Obama's birthday party, which I don't really care if he holds it or not, but it is interesting the type of person who was there. It was the very most elite of society who was at this party. Again, no masking or anything like that. They're all vaccinated, but, you know, who cares at this point? That's my position on this. But you've got this uniform failure on both fronts where these more elite leaders, you've got your presidents, your senators, your, 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 you know, your representatives, you've got the bureaucrats on all sides, all failing in spectacular, in, you know, just spectacular fashion, showing that they don't care anything about what the people believe. You can't expect for that to happen and no reaction to take place. Political ideas, political movements, political decisions all have consequences. So you have to remember here, we went from the victories of Reagan, and he was victorious in so many different areas of society. You know, you're talking economy, he topples the Soviets, we're a stronger nation on the backside of that. He, he turns the world from a bipolar world into a unipolar world where America is, is king over everything, effectively ushering a new era of peace. We go from that to the disasters since then. Neither party has been able to present a compelling look forward on what the country should do now since we're in this kind of world. They don't have an idea of a vision to give Americans and what to believe in. And populism exists because the elites have failed, and they have failed to represent the people. And they have failed to do that not just in one party, but in two parties. And instead of acknowledging their their failures, they're doubling down. And so you're getting these pieces like Tom Nichols where he said, the elites haven't failed, it's the people that have failed. And that's the very worst of elite opinion because it can't even admit failures, even though there are provable failures here. And so we have populism now. Now, is the media fawning this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can look at any kind of clickbait website. Of course they're writing in on this because it's easy money. And But but even with that, the media can create populism. There has to be a reason for it to exist. If governance was competent, the people would respond. And they have not gotten competence in any form in several decades. Decades. There's some young people who don't even know what competent governments look like. They just read about it in a book. So I think when you're going to make these arguments for and against populism, I think you have to factor in the environment that it rose up in. But bringing that back to the original question, you know, we were talking about empathy and the lack of it. You know, we, we've, ha- we've had all these disasters and all these crisis points now, and I think... I think this lack of empathy at the moment, I think that's hap- making it easier for populism to exist because it's allowing more anger to exist. There's less empathy there. There are, of course, more resilient people, and people are, you know, you have these instances where people are responding well, but I think when you have this this desensitization, it makes it easier for populism to exist because people can see these failures. And as you're amplifying these failures across the board, which are provable, you're making it easier for them to make their case there. There's obviously the opposite case here because you have the American people rising up to help out in Afghanistan. I think one of the best examples of this was, was Glenn, Beck's, Glenn Beck's program. His audience raised $22 million in two to three days to help airlift people out. 
Then you have the American people helping out each other in the pandemic wherever they can. And, you know, there's so much more. I mean, here in Tennessee, I'm watching volunteers and supplies pour in here into communities here and helping out in places like Waverly and McEwen, Tennessee, where they've had 17 inches of rain in six hours, causing catastrophic flooding. And it appears like it's going to be the worst flood, both in the quantity of, of, of volume and just in the damage and the deaths it caused in, on record in the state. And people are still are still helping out here. And so with those stories, I think those kind of stories kind of undermine the idea that, that the bases are bad and that it's because of the base that, that everything's happened here. Because so far, I mean, particularly with, with Glenn Beck's program, there were people who are actually trying to help out people they don't know. That's faster action and more empathy and care than we can get out of the federal government here. So you have people helping, and you know I think this blunts the criticism a little bit of what Jonah is saying here, because they suggest that the people are good here, they want to help, but on a political level, they're not getting it. And it doesn't matter who they vote for, they're not getting good governance and good leadership. And so that is causing more anger and more frustration here. Because we just had a truly bad run here the last couple decades on political leadership. And so I think that's why your populism exists. It has a reason. And the people are still doing all these good things, but they're not getting the return on investment in the people that are getting elected. So I you know, I think there are pros and cons to both of these arguments. There are obviously rejoinders to, you know, all of this, and I don't have a clean way to get everything to balance out yet. Uh, but this is sort of just where I am at the moment. So if you've got comments on all this, you know, please reach out. I'm curious to hear what others think about what we're going through right now. I think the empathy point is an interesting one. Seeing how society is changing because of the pandemic is sort of interesting to watch play out. And we don't know how that's going to happen. So if you've got thoughts on that, ways that you're seeing that, and I'd be curious to hear what people think. That's all I've got for this week, though. So this week's line item, as I said at the top... It's the 58th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial. Everyone was there in for the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, which brought out between 200 to 300,000 people to the streets of Washington, D.C. to protest for equality. Speakers spoke in favor of voting and economic legislation that would give blacks the same rights as whites. And if you go to the day, there's a marker on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial that marks the spot where King delivered that speech. So... Again, the 58th anniversary here, I thought I would play that all for you here because it's one of the best speeches in American history, and I think it's important to hear those words. I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, J.R. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves 
who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. And every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day with all of God's children be able to sing with new meaning 
my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrims' pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring. From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. in every city. We will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at Audio cupped off a little there at the end. Uh, that was just the best version I could find there. The uh, I wanted to mention real quick for a finish up here. One of the other reasons I was thinking about this speech this this weekend was uh, the news story that uh, Jesse Jackson and the Reverend Jesse Jackson and his uh, his wife are in the hospital with COVID nineteen. They were vaccinated. They were he had been going out making the case for people to go get vaccinated. So prayers for them. Hopefully. He uh, he recovers quickly, so he was part of that movement with King. So that was one of the other reasons that I had this on my mind this week. So, 58th anniversary coming up, one of the greatest speeches in American history, and one of the more important times in our history. So that's all I've got for this week. Questions, comments, frustrations, or anxieties, please reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked it and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.